0: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 855 AM Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can
1: change.
2: Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects. To the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. This is episode two in a series about the transition that we are making from being a coal and gas exporter to exporting anything that doesn't provoke more climate derangement. We give a platform in this show to the activists and tonight you will hear what a struggle it is in South Africa to find alternatives to exporting coal. They are the seventh largest producer in the world. We will also talk to Warwick Jordan from the Hunter Jobs Alliance. They bring together unions and environment groups and their June report is called Building for the Future. They call for a Hunter Valley Authority dedicated to securing their coal-rich regions' prosperity. We'll also have Luke Skinner in Western Australia from the Climate Justice Union. But in case we forget why leaving most of the coal in the ground and not opening up new mines is so urgent, here's an excellent report from Matt Bevan on the 30th of June on Radio National. He mentions climate change, but not one of the solutions which would be to stop our coal and gas exports. Now, I don't blame him for this. The ABC is reporting under constraints, but you can lobby the abc can't you to link the shocking weather events which they report on with their cause here's what our friends in canada and usa the west coast people what they're enduring right now from heat waves Temperature records are being broken up and down the Pacific coast of North America as a heatwave grips the US state of Oregon and Washington and the Canadian province of British Columbia. In Salem, Oregon's state capital, temperatures reached 47.2 degrees. It's the hottest since record-keeping began in the
3: 1890s. The heat is putting significant pressure on infrastructure in a region that's just not used to extreme temperatures. Matt Bevan's been taking a look. Hi, Matt. day, Fran. It's uh, kind of extraordinary that we're talking about this only five months. After almost the exact opposite thing was happening in another part of the US. In February, uh, you'll recall, the southern states were plunged into chaos as infrastructure designed for hot weather struggled to cope with extreme cold. Power and water infrastructure failed as temperatures reached minus 19 degrees in Dallas minus 26 in Oklahoma City and minus 34 in Hastings Bra- Hastings Nebraska uh, those temperature records tone uh, to temperatures broke records more than a century old now as I say the opposite thing is happening in uh, the Pacific coast here is Canada's CBC meteorologist Johanna Wagstaff describing the phenomenon which is causing this heat wave a heat dome is essentially a huge high pressure Ridge we get sinking air around a high pressure and that basically acts like a cap locking in and cooking the air below. Not only is it bizarrely high in temperature, it's also bizarrely high in altitude. We are seeing heat at the top of our mountains that are usually below the freezing mark all year round. And that is causing rapid melt of our snow and ice, leading to flood watches and warnings across many of our rivers. And as she and other reporters have said, this uh, suffering is compounded by the fact that due to the generally mild climate in the region, very few people have access to air conditioning. I've got to tell you, I have no air conditioning, as does most, uh, over half of British Columbians. I had to go to my sister's uh, basement last night with the whole family to beat the heat.
0: And with a
4: significant part of the population here living without AC, a lot of people checked into the hotels. As of last night, downtown Portland completely sold out In fact, the hotel we were staying at uh, had issues with the AC. It stopped working. We had to move hotels. And there's reports of another major hotel that has shut down for the next few days because the AC just couldn't handle it.
3: All this is doing strange things to the infrastructure. In Seattle, it's leading to the roads buckling. Here's local NBC reporter Michael Crow.
5: Monday afternoon, this section of pavement on I-5 buckled from the heat. WashDOT dealt with at least seven similar incidents over the weekend.
4: The heat expands the concrete... They push up against each other, and then they heave up above the roadway and create a large bump.
5: A bump that means closures and delays until crews can patch it. Across the region, heat made getting around more difficult. Seattle is spraying steel drawbridges with water to keep them cool and operating, and Sound Transit slowed Link and Sounder trains, citing the heat expanding key components.
3: In Portland, Oregon, the entire rail system has been shut down. Here's local transport official Tyler
5: Graff explaining why. The MAX system is it's designed to operate... Uh, up to 110 degrees but even then as temperatures are rising puts more and more strain on the system
6: and today we saw that our overhead wires were up to 120 degrees and our rails at 140 degrees so we had reached that threshold at which uh, it was not safe or or effective for us to continue running max trains
3: Uh, In Spokane, Washington, rolling blackouts have begun to try and prevent damage to the power grid, as local councillor Brianne Briggs uh, told CBS.
6: What's going on on our power is that we have plenty of power supply in our grid. That's not the issue. What's going on is uh, individual transformers in individual neighbourhoods are tripping off, uh, much like a circuit breaker. And the reason they are is that the heat inside the transformer is going up because of excess usage but it's that with the combination of the exterior heat that is tripping it so to get ahead of it what they're doing is they're shutting off power one hour at a time
3: now, you don't have to venture far into a conversation about this with a climate expert or a meteorologist before you start to talk about climate change. They will tell you that the science indicates that extreme weather, weather will become more intense and more frequent as the climate changes and temperature records for heat and cold being set in the same country in the same year. It's a pretty good indication that things are a bit different now to how they were in the past. The big difference between this heat wave and the cold snap in Texas, apart from the temperature, is in Texas. Texas, the political leaders refused to accept the role of climate change, with many saying the cold weather was in fact definitive proof that global warming wasn't happening at all. In the Pacific Northwest, though, political leaders tend to be more accepting of the science. In fact, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee ran for president last year on an explicit climate change platform. In his public statements during this heat wave, he has been clear about what he thinks is responsible.
4: Climate change has dropped a heat bomb on the Pacific Northwest. We're called the evergreen state for a reason. It's moderate, it's cool, it drizzles
7: quite often.
4: We were not meant for this. And so you have a whole infrastructure, a whole economy, a whole culture built on moderate temperatures. Our agricultural industry, our construction industry, and being able to work outside, we are not prepared for that. Uh,
3: not prepared for it at the moment, friend. but they might need to be. Yeah, indeed. Matt, thank you very much. Cheers, friend.
2: The slogans of a just transition and a managed transition for our coal and gas producing regions seem particularly hard to achieve in Australia. So our guests tonight are Warwick Jordan from the Hunter Jobs Alliance and Luke Skinner in Western Australia from the Climate Justice Union. Welcome to you both i'm happy for this to be more of a conversation than an interview so could we start by each of you telling us about yourself and why you've both stepped into this arena of unbearable tension as far as i'm concerned with jobs versus the environment workers being hung out to dry in the past and global economic shifts of astounding dimensions according to Tim Buckley at IEFA and the Smart Energy Conference people, they're talking about enormous tectonic shifts. So we're in the middle. Warwick.
6: So I'm born and bred in the Hunter region in New South Wales. I had a fairly long history working in and around resource and conservation issues, mainly around forestry. And through that experience, uh, learnt at least some things about how challenging it can be to support regional communities through change when there's big changes to resource industries uh, in places like Tasmania. Clearly, it's it's quite difficult to get the, the clear air and the types of practical on-ground activities that are um, required to deal with big structural economic changes and, and required to deal with environmental challenges as well um while you have uh, a polarized discussion happening and where people find it difficult to understand what tangible practical actions look like that can support communities through change. And so having observed that in a couple of different places and seen the scale of the challenge in uh, my home part of the world a, a few years ago, I threw my hat into trying to, to work out how to deal with those challenges. so, um, I've worked a little bit with the um with the federal government on that, with local councils and stakeholders um, directly with uh, retrenched workers in the resources sector and and with some of the bigger businesses that um, are engaged in in dealing with these kind of changes as well.
2: And you've got an alliance with unions and environmentalists, which I think is great because the unions alone don't seem to be able to do it.
6: Yeah, look, so the, the Hunter Jobs Alliance uh, that I've been working with for the last six months or so, that's a new uh, alliance of nine unions and four community environment organisations. It's very much focused on ensuring that people in our part of the world are aware of the reality of change and uh, are able to feel some confidence and some trust that there are uh, practical things that can be done to support them through change, to attract jobs and to be able to secure some of the environmental outcomes that we're looking for.
2: Well what about you, Luke? I first first met you through the Beyond Zero Emissions Collie report. And Collie's a big coal yeah. mining area in Western Australia. Tell us how you why you've jumped into this arena. As I said, it's unbearable tension for me. <laughs>
5: yeah, yeah. I mean there's there's a lot that's already been discussed that I want to respond to, but I'll talk a little bit about Myself and climate justice Union first i I guess i've um, <clears throat> always had an interest in in human rights and and been involved in human rights activism for a long time since at least 2003 when I was a high school student active against the Iraq war uh, long story short though uh, my interest in human rights eventually intersected uh, with climate change in recognizing that you know climate change is a human created issue as is an issue that has been killing humans and impacting human lives for decades already uh, and is going to have the most profound impact on all human systems including jobs including health you know including the housing that people live in the buildings that we have our ports our transport infrastructure and all of that uh, which basically you know led, led me to realizing that this is the space in which uh, my time and effort was, was best spent if I wanted to produce a, a better future uh, for everybody.
2: Well, look, I'd like to come back to the exports because I think the debate in Australia is all about Australians cutting their own emissions, you know, cutting our domestic emissions. But really, it's the exported emissions and that that is something that we should be taking responsibility for. And we heard Richard Dennis last week talking um, on the show I produced last week, and he said, that that we should do it anyway because international pressure will force us. but the plan, the blueprint is missing. A couple of things
6: that are important to acknowledge um, you know anyone, any of the listeners who've who've lived in a regional community will will understand this. Um, but we yeah we have parts of our community. So the hunter region has six hundred thousand people in it. Um, but we have parts of our community that are heavily dependent on resource sector, um, towns like Musselbrook and Singleton where um, on the label you're looking at maybe 30 40% of jobs in those communities and they're not small places either, you know, 15,000 people in each. You're talking about at least a third of the community being directly dependent on that thermal export sector for employment. So that's obviously a lot of people in, in these places. And those communities, they didn't have 15,000, 20,000 people living in them before those industries were there. So that's that's why there's people there. That's that's what they do. And that won't be unfamiliar to, to anyone who, who's lived in a resource region or a power generation region. But uh, in terms of how you can provide other opportunities for people as those industries changes. It, you know, it's not just a matter of sprinkling some pixie dust and and working out. Uh, you know what people could do. People are people are proud to work in these sectors. In terms of planning uh, for diversification, you can see the the scale of the challenge is huge. And even the the word transition has become. Another politicised phrase where it, it, you know people's view on transition or even you know what the forecast reality of the thermal coal export sector is has become a marker of of people's political view one way or another and,
2: well, what about this word justice you know you both understand the just transition you're the justice climate justice union. Which groups of people are you most worried about when you're thinking about the injustice of coal communities actually having been left behind? We heard about those Kentucky miners. You have, I think it was Hunter Renewal brought some people out from Kentucky and they just talked about oh, the devastation. They all had to be retrained. We heard about Germany where they, of course, did it in a very organized way, um, but 98% of them were in the union. So they... They could organise it like that.
5: Well, and it was also a very different situation in Germany where they had yeah. 30 years of time and it wasn't driven necessarily by climate change no, requirements that's either.
2: No, well, that's uh, true. But think, still, we need we need um, to think of the groups that are people going to be left out to dry, as it were. Well, who were you most worried about? It might not be well, the miners. It might be the actually. hairdresser down the road. It might be the schoolteacher, you know.
5: I think it's everyone in a community like that, to be honest. Um what happens when a community collapses is that everyone in the community is impacted by it. And you only need to look at what's been happening in, in the town of Coley over the past decade. Uh, wages have already gone backwards in those towns. The, the uh, companies at some of the coal mines actually tried to cancel EBAs and, and make there be a, a 40% reduction in wages. So everyone that that flows onto is impacted. But every time there is a mention of the possibility of a coal mine closing or of transitioning away from Fossil fuel developed power, station, you know, fired power stations in Collie. The house price drops, so everyone who's a homeowner has their asset value drop. There are a lot of different ways that people are impacted. Um, but I also think that then, you know, the 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 idea that there is going to be a plan and a transition at which people are not going to be impacted. I think we're past that time now. I think we're actually at a point now where we are in an unplanned transition where we are having sudden shutdowns of fossil fuel related industries. BP refinery here in Western Australia, an oil refinery shut down with a six month notice, all of the employees being made redundant. Uh, Similar things happening in oil refineries in Victoria. And I think that that's the risk that. Obviously, I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone from the Hunter, but that's the risk that I see for export-related industries, whether it's the Hunter or the gas sector here in Western Australia. You've got the International Energy Agency saying that our fossil fuel fuel exports need to reduce by 25% or more from Australia in the next 10 years, nine years. And that's the International Energy Agency, which is a fossil fuel lobby group, essentially. So my concern is actually that because we've been so late to the party at the moment, We're now playing emergency catch up and it is highly likely that there are going to be some really negative impacts on some of those towns that are really dependent upon uh whether it's coal or gas or other fossil fuel exports and that the job at the moment is to make sure that those people who are going to be impacted are at the table identifying how they're going to be impacted identifying what supports they need for their community to keep it you know viable and keep it vibrant as a collapse happens around them you know uh, and that's that's a lot of my concern in, in for those about- communities. It's, it's not just individuals; it's whole communities.
0: This is cold. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's cold. It's cold.
2: It's cold. Tune in every Monday at five PM to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Warwick, what do you reckon? Oh, look, I,
6: I think we're talking about the classic challenge. In terms of structural change and the pace that it happens, it's not a it's not a smooth glide path where people have the chance to map out exactly how it's going to work. Those situations are are rare. The situation I think that we have in, in the Hunter, uh, people are very concerned broadly about the future of some of these industries, but we haven't actually seen a real start in. In a structural change or a transition, yet coal exports have been consistent and consistently at record volumes for the last five years or so. We, there was a bit of a blip during COVID, but it, it sort of points to two big challenges. So, all of the textbooks around how economies manage economic change and how communities get supported—the number one thing they all say is make use of the preparation time that you have, but as humans, we're hardwired to not respond to those signals. You know, that's why economists use discount rates. It's why, you know, we have psychological reasons why we choose to ignore um, problems that are uncertain or, or a long way off in the future or, or cost a fair bit um, for an uncertain outcome. And so it, it's quite challenging to get people to think about these these big issues because it, it means talking about change it means talking about uh unpredictable and and, and negative outcomes and harms for people um i guess what we hope to engender is that there is a level of control that you can try and take to be able to uh, manage those those kind of inevitable changes but that's a that's a difficult thing to to talk about with people when um, oftentimes, what we're looking for is is security and and confidence. And some of these situations uh, inherently don't involve um, that security. They inherently involve change. Every year, the International Energy Agency puts out three scenarios as part as part of their big report as as to what might happen with uh, the the creation and use of energy. And those three scenarios generally result in different. Uh, opinion pieces from uh, industry or environmental stakeholders that pick a scenario that uh, probably suits their their narrative the most, and then that's the story that they tell. And that sort of reflects the fact that there are plausible alternative realities. So you know, here in the Hunter, we do hear uh, the coal industry talk about the fact that you know we have access to markets that are more likely to be buying coal than others in future and they're close to us and so on. And so that means that we potentially have more longevity. Um, You know, at the same time, you have other people looking at those markets and, you know, looking at statements by importing countries and seeing a change happening much more quickly. I, I think probably the reality there is that those conversations about what forecast or scenario might be right, that sort of becomes a bit of a side issue or a sideshow at the end of the day. that the fact is that there's a trend there, and there's some really important statements that are being made overseas about demand and so on, and they're worthwhile paying attention to. and probably the only thing that um, we can predict is that it's going to be unpredictable and yeah. that we should try and manage what we can manage in in the interests of of our region and our community.
2: yeah, but i'm I'm finding this. I'm getting a bit frustrated here like I'm I'm not immersed in it like you are and I just have this nervous feeling that unless you have all the people around the table like where is there a table metaphorically that everybody's sitting around who asked who are the stakeholders that's why I like the German one I know that they took 30 years to do it and they didn't do it for climate change but you know they got all the communities they're proud of that we had the Michael Mersman the unionist there he was they were proud of it they struggled to do it and then they were all committed to the outcome it's, it's a model that can't be replicated now but i am feeling that there's a lot of people and you're both in alliances and i I think there's business also we haven't mentioned we haven't really mentioned the union input but i feel that this is why things are me different realities are mediated the media just grabs onto one aspect of things and talks about that but what's the the overarching picture i can't believe we're in free Mm. fall as you've said, Luke.
6: Well, look, I, I would say, so a, a couple of things. I, certainly to your point, and I think Luke mentioned it, Northern Europe is a very different place to regional Australia. You know, I think some of those places had the misfortune and then the the good sense to be able to pick themselves up after a existential crisis in World War I II know. and yeah. recognise that there was a more collaborative way of doing things. And we haven't had that experience here in our political economy and, and so on is quite different. But from our point of view with the 100 Jobs Alliance, the number one thing that we're campaigning for in our community is to create that table. It is to create the place where we can have the conversation and, and also to create the place where we can start to implement those those tools. We can implement those uh, on-ground activities that we know are most likely to be able to help. And so that's the the core of the business that we're advocating for, is that you need a place to have that conversation. And I guess we're also trying to walk the walk a little bit as far as showing that there is a way to have this conversation that is a bit less polarised, that we can tamp down some of that, that, that conflict and recognise that yes, that's going to exist. Yes, there's going to be different views about what we could or should be doing, but there's a reality we need to respond to and we're best placed to do that collectively and to try and learn from other places about what practically works as well as um, having that more of a consensus view. And it's hard it's hard graph, but we're we're focused on that and, and we are getting some response from our community.
5: I think that's right and then Collie the same thing, right? The, for a very long time, there was no table to have the conversation at. The table to have the conversation at was created in the local community, by the local community when they were experiencing impacts of transition. So when they were starting to see house prices fall and when people would get anxious about losing their jobs and when employers were starting to say, hey, we can't make as much money off coal, we're gonna reduce your wages. The emergency came into play and people were like, oh, okay we need to work together. There was a lot of conflict that needed to be managed. You know, some of that um, talking past each other going on and that's why having somewhat neutral parties, I guess, like um, local people from the local community in the Hunter Jobs Alliance kind of space. uh, And, you know, then the, the interested parties in regards to the workers, the business owners, the state governments, getting together and have those conversations is important. What that led to here in Western Australia was actually a state government stepping in and creating a Just Transitions Working Group, which has regular meetings with the, all of the, sta- not all of the stakeholders, with many of the key stakeholders in Collie here in Western Australia. What has been missing a little bit from that, which I think is a really critically important part um, that Climate Justice Union is working on uh, helping bring it into the space here in Western Australia, is about managing the non-energy part of the transition, the part that's not about replacing jobs with jobs, but is about looking after the community during turmoil, during a time of turmoil. And I don't know enough about the Hunter to talk on any of that kind of stuff, but certainly here in Western Australia, Polly is also a community that's impacted by climate change and the impacts of climate change in addition. It's in an area that's heavily fire prone. It's in an area that can experience really extreme heat uh all of those kinds of risks of climate change also need to be brought into the equation but then looking at things like if there are jobs that are ending and the next round of jobs for them are some time away you know even if there is a proper transition planning process in place there might be 18 months a year, two years sometimes between people being able to go from a good job to another good job. What needs to be done to support that person's health, their mental health, make sure they're able to keep their home and not just at an individual level, but what does the whole community need for those pieces? And often being regional communities that don't have adequate mental health or health facilities already, you know, and they're going to need more of them as a result of changing economic circumstances in the town. Um, So we are looking at doing a uh, piece of research in collaboration with the university here in WA and with the support of the uh, coal mining unions in Collie to do a vulnerability uh, assessment for the community and look at, in a broad social concept, what are the vulnerabilities this community has? What are the poverty traps? What are the things that make People more susceptible to illness? What are the things that affect people's mental health, their economic circumstances, and all of those kinds of things? What's that at now? How's that going to be impacted by climate change? And then what are the risks that the transition itself adds into that equation? Uh, And looking at that, it's, you know, the uncertainties that uh, Warwick was talking about earlier are a big part of it. So we have a transition plan for some of the coal fired power plants here in WA. Uh, I think it's unit C and D. I think D is already shut down. Unit C clearly um, is going to be shut down on 2024. And then after that, there is not currently a timetable for when the rest of those um, plants are likely to be retired. Now, you can make any conjectures you want about how long they might survive in the grid for, for whatever various reasons. But there is a very significant possibility of something happening at a coal mine you know, an explosion in a facility or a piece of damage to an of equipment that actually or in a uh, power plant that actually then renders it too expensive to, for it to be worthwhile repairing and turning that back on and what are the potential impacts of that for the hundreds of workers who depend upon those jobs that have currently got no security, currently got no guarantee of ongoing work or any of those kind of pieces. So part of our vulnerability work is going to be looking at all right, what's going to happen with the existing known retirements, but then what are the risks of unplanned shutdowns? Uh, and I think that that's an important thing um, to, to, to understand and for a whole community to understand and to be able to prepare for, because if those kinds of things happen, you know, they're related to suicide results, they're related to poor health, they're related to poverty, they're related to all of those kind of intersectional vulnerabilities in a community. That somewhere like the hunter or the or collie is going to need to address uh, so yeah I think having people that are in the community sector mental health providers and all of those involved in the conversation as well is actually an important part of transition planning for a community. <laughs>
2: They're affected by climate change, but also affected by all this talk about transition and you know coals hitting the wall and all that. Uh, Warwick, could you just give a, a brief comment, and then Luke, you might have one minute to finish.
6: Yeah, look, look I'll, I'll just I'll just reflect what's come through directly from some of our affiliates and their their members, particularly the the manufacturing workers union and, and the electrical trades union, up here. The The feedback that came through when they were having conversations with their workers initially about issues around transition and structural change and the like was a fair deal of concern about the scale of change. People have seen it in manufacturing sectors. They can see the challenges running an aluminium smelter on a grid with more renewables, penetration, uh, power stations are closing, all of those type of things. But the, the key thing that came through was not a great deal of, of confidence or, or probably worse than that, a, a level of scepticism about uh, whether government or, or business would do anything to be able to support them or to develop new opportunities. And so that was a really strong feedback and that was one of the things that started the Jobs Alliance essentially was that um, workers were seeing, seeing the issue but didn't have, a, have much confidence and much was being done and so they wanted to see some action.
2: Luke? workers how are they affected
5: yeah i think that's a perfect summary of it to some extent you know that workers are not the the biggest thing is anxiety for people i think uh around transition at least uh in my day job i work at united workers union as a climate organizer we're also one of the partners of the hja um, and we run extreme weather at work training in occupational health and safety so we have actually hundreds of members have done that training since starting it last year and what we've found is that actually workers can identify in a lot of different sectors in a lot of different ways how they are already being affected in some quite severe ways uh, by climate change impacts particularly from extreme weather Uh, and you know you can talk about people in factories and coal mining communities or uh, any of those kind of places but there's a whole Sweats of workers being affected by climate change. People who work in schools as teachers or education assistants or gardeners in Northern Queensland, where it's really bloody hot, and they are literally just struggling to be able to do their job because of the heat. People who work as uh, disability support workers or aged care or home care workers in parts of Victoria and New South Wales that were so heavily impacted by the fires, and then then people not knowing whether or not they're charged, the person they're responsible for day to day, they can't get to them. They don't know if that person's been fed, cleaned, showered, if they're alive, you know, Uh, and all of those kinds of things are impacts of climate change that are happening now. So I think the conversation about the impacts of climate change on workers actually needs to be broadened out to the whole of our society. And that's when we can start to have a real conversation about what are the impacts of climate change on people here and now.
2: Okay. Would you like to ask each other a question just to finish?
5: Yeah, sure. I've,
6: I, I've got a question. Uh, is there, have you got an observation on, you know, was there a tipping point in, in WA as far as when people started to take transition seriously and, you know, when you started to see government respond to it?
5: Yeah, I think that, um, that there was a bit of a tipping point that essentially came along with the companies going a little bit too hard on the workers uh, and attacking the workers, and then the workers having to and the whole community having to get behind each other to secure the existing jobs in the community. And that's an economics-related issue that goes back to whether or not people are going to bind together and fight for what they need or not. And so I think that actually the creation of something like the Hunter Jobs Alliance, the creation of uh, community meetings in Collie that were run initially by the workers who were impacted by those changes. I think that's really the, the start of the tipping point. Obviously, it then takes a little while for that momentum to build into an actual tipping point, but I think that's where it was here. And I also think that having um, some intentional work done to talk across political divides even political divides you know within people that, within organizations that are theoretically on the same side of politics uh, i think that also made quite a, a big bit of difference and just having some neutral third parties or uh, neutral people in the space who could say actually you're saying that this person says x y z believes x y z but they're telling me a b and c i think you're actually on in the same book, just not quite on the same page, you know.
2: That was Luke Skinner in Western Australia for the Climate Justice Union and Warwick Jordan in Newcastle for the Hunter Jobs Alliance. Now we're going to South Africa. They are, as I said, the seventh largest coal producer in the world and their exports to Europe are drying up. They have 250 mines east of Johannesburg and the world's largest coal-fired power stations, which make the air quality sickening. If the coal-exporting countries got together around a table, could they speed up the transition? Could they be in control of it rather than scrambling not to be its victim? I thought I would bring you the voices from other countries to show that Australia is not alone in struggling with the curse of coal and gas. There's a handful of countries in the world who really control the major exports. And I think if they got together, there must be something they could do. 30 years ago, our Prime Minister Bob Hawke and the French Prime Minister Michel Rocard signed an agreement to protect Antarctica from mining leaving this pristine place for science and conservation. Only 12 countries were needed to make this happen, and my hope is that the coal-exporting countries will agree to phase out coal in a managed way, followed by gas and oil. Otherwise, they will be forced. But it's a race against time. Oh, breaking news! Royal Dutch Shell has been ordered by a court in the Netherlands to cut its emissions in the next 10 years. Friends of the Earth and six other organisations took Shell to court for causing climate change. This will trigger a wave of litigation against big polluters to stop them extracting or burning fossil fuels. Just shows what groups can do. Please join up with any of them. That was Friends of the Earth.
6: What follows is a message on the Climactic Community Corner, free space we give to the climate community to share messages. To find out more or share a message of your own, just head to climactic.fm and click on Community Corner in the top banner. This is a message from a community member named...
0: Tejo Paula Rawls. This might sound a bit over the top, but I honestly don't think it is. It just hit me how much I want to thank and celebrate all the people out there trying to do something about the climate crisis. I mean, I hope you realise how utterly extraordinary what you are doing is. I know how hard it can be. None of us knows if we will avert the worst or not. And yet we need to keep going. And you do. You even pace yourself because you know that this is both a sprint and a marathon. Isn't it insane? We're literally doing what we can to save the very basis of life on Earth. You were taking on huge corporates. You're fighting your own governments. And it's crazy that we even need to do that. But isn't it amazing too? I mean, you're inspiring many and putting up with being hated by some. I I am proud to know those who do this and I am hugely encouraged to know there are many, many more I will never even meet. I wish I could tell you to your face what incalculable good you are doing. There are scientists, school kids, churchgoers, farmers, crazy ferals who live on frontline camps and get arrested, scared parents just trying to look after their kids, feeling out of their depth, performance artists, and people who've survived a fire in a coal mine and who just had to do something for their community, doctors, firefighters, politicians, organisers and meditators. Thank you. Yes, I am proud to do what I do too, but much prouder to know that you are out there.
2: Thank you to Aaron Atteridge, who went to South Africa for the Stockholm Environment Institute. This is part of his podcast. The first person he talks to is Mike Levington, manager of Navitas KLD, and then Promise Malvaney, who is a South African environment campaigner. (music)
4: If there is an existential threat facing the coal industry, and concerns about the impacts this would have on jobs, on the environment, on the wider economy, and perhaps even on the political fabric of the country, then what kind of discussion is happening on how to prepare for this scenario? What needs to be done in mining areas, and who should take responsibility for preparing the country, and its coal mining regions, for a transition away from coal? Mike Levington makes the point that new economic activities need to be found to keep these places alive.
8: Vitbank is there, Middleburg is there because they found coal. Clarksdorp is there because they found, and Velcom is there because they found gold. Same with Kimberley, I guess, and diamonds. Now those industries are closing down, you, ha- you have to find a new legacy almost, okay? because you've now built huge regional or local communities and Economies that have serviced those industries.
4: What are the options that those working with a transition plan might look at? What are the alternative jobs or economic activities that might be pursued in mining regions?
8: Well, as soon as you start using the word energy transition, and, and it's a very um, fashionable phrase in, in all walks of, uh, of, of South Africa right now, you then realise that, to go back to the fact that we've built this huge mineral industrial complex, particularly around coal, that for us to transition from coal to renewables we had to find a way of industrializing renewable energy i know our president has said that he thinks mining is a sunrise economy which was an interesting (laughs) concept i mean my view is to say if you start moving these economies from mining economies over to green you know green economies using sort of large-scale deployment of renewable energy well, then you are creating a sunrise industry. If I'm going to sit in front of the politicians and persuade them to allow me to build this much renewables, I I need to have a better value proposition than just I'm the cheapest, Okay, But but we had to create the jobs, um, and we had to create jobs in the value chain, Okay, not just the primary jobs of people digging trenches and O&M and things like that. So the thing we miss is an industrial plan but also how do we make it relevant when you look at the mining sector uh, sorry the gold and coal mining sector they tend to have very strong um, distribution and transmission grids okay and they're close to the load centers okay and um, which means I can recycle the grid secondly you had lots of land that had been defrayed through mining activities and had very little uh, agricultural potential and clearly food production is a is clearly a, um, a critical issue for South Africa. Thirdly, you had sort of large uh, unskilled and semi-skilled populations... which you would like to try and, you know, have settled there... and now you almost want to, to try and keep there. But if to keep there, you've got to give them new jobs. And then finally was this industrialization in these areas of light engineering... that serviced the mining sector... that if you could give them enough certainty of a, of a future pipeline you could get them to move their services across the renewable energy industry. How do you make this happen in, in practice? For me, the critical part is how do I get the, the industrial development from it? You know, the totemic items like the panels and turbines, you, you probably have to have a very serious sit down and say, do I really think I can compete with the Chinese manufacturing capacity? Maybe we need to find a different model if we want that to happen. I think in terms of the, the supply chain, so a lot of the components could be very easily made here. But, you know, a lot of companies who, who did make those, uh, who did fulfil that supply chain locally, have literally just closed those lines down. And now what they want to see is, is a very clear commitment in the IRP that says there's going to be megawatts built per year. It doesn't matter if we believe that there's all this kind of... Um, private IPPs and commercial IPPs that are going on almost under the radar screen. For manufacturing and industrial development to happen, we need to see it in the central plan.
4: Whether it's the renewable energy sector or something else, it seems a fair amount of innovative thinking and imagination is needed to come up with new visions for what are today coal mining regions. I asked Anna Martha Ott from the Middleburg Chamber of Commerce what her vision is for Umpumalanga, once coal mining is no longer a going concern.
9: Okay, I've got two visions. What I hope does not happen, if, I don't know if any of you guys were, have been to Cottbus in Eastern Germany. There's these big, expansive areas with nothing. Or it's like a desert. Or they've got large asset mines. Um, that is my worst fear. And I've shown a couple of pictures for the guys and said, this is what can happen if we don't control the mining industry. What I would like to see is that we have, we expand on the agriculture, become the the food basket for uh, South Africa, but the funny food, you know, the specialised food, like blueberries and raspberries and things like that that you can do under, um, um, you know, vertical farming and things like that. So we, we keep on putting pressure on whoever we can that we need to have other businesses, other opportunities, other developments in this area.
4: South Africa's National Planning Commission has initiated what it calls a just transition process. This is a process that brings together different stakeholders to discuss pathways for making the South African economy more just. The process isn't only about mining, it's a dialogue about the whole economy, but inevitably it will have to grapple with issues like a future decline in coal mining, and the impact this will have at the national level, and also in mining regions, especially Mpumalanga. According to Mike Levington, there is still a lot to be grappled with.
8: I spoke to to someone a couple of days ago who's very involved in the in the just energy transition. I think the frustration is that I would say virtually all the stakeholders now are saying South Africa is on an energy transition, but we've kind of sloganized the term and there isn't actually an implementable plan, you know, in, out there. So it's it's very difficult when you when you sloganize something and you don't actually say right, now what does it mean to labour. What does it mean to business? What does it mean to government? What does it mean to, to civil society? I think probably civil society and labour have a clearer idea of what they want from it, but not an actionable
4: plan. As I understand it, South African mining companies are required to prepare what are called social and labour plans, or SLPs. And the idea being that they provide funding for local communities that helps the community to diversify and develop other economic activities. How helpful do you think these are? Are they providing a platform for social and economic transition?
8: Earlier this year, I remember there we was at some dialogues that the MPC had on, on the just transition. And, and what, what you found is is that at a macro level in, the, in this space, you have very large mining companies uh, that have large social and labour plan budgets, um, and you have government that also has a large national budget. I think it was like $17 billion they had, to assist uh, distressed mining towns also there you you had lots of ngos who work very much at that macro level but in each of these cases and what was clear they're constrained by budgets but if you go at the high level they've got large budgets to spend on slp but invariably can't spend it and there are some, I would say, there are some technical constraints of why they why they can't. But one of the big reasons is because there is no kind of core strategy in there that aligns all of the stakeholders. You know, at a at all the spheres of government, say at a, a national, and provincial, and local um, stakeholders from business, labour, and government. And how do you find the platform for for that macro level to interact with the micro level who are actually on the ground? Okay. who actually have plans that are relevant to the communities okay. and, and, and that we can give those them the resources that they need. Okay. And, and that's, that's a, something that's kind of missing.
4: Mike's concern that the money available isn't being invested in sensible strategies that could make mining regions more resilient as their economies change in the future is echoed by Anna Marth Ott in the Middleburg Chamber of Commerce.
9: The, there's such a power play with the guys that in charge with the so, social labour plans uh, because there's a lot of money involved. The different companies don't want to talk to each other, so there's no cohesive approach to make sure that the economy and the local people actually benefit from the social labour plans. You'll find, if you really investigate, they don't really spend the money. They just move it around.
4: The term just transition pops up everywhere nowadays, not only in South Africa. But what does it actually mean, especially to the people whose livelihoods are going to be most affected? I asked Martin Kagwa from the National Union of Miners what a just transition means to him.
7: I think this is a very hard question, <laughs> but I'll share what I think what should be just. For me, I think it just means a transition that will not make one party worse off because of the initiative. And coming from workers, I'm saying that no worker should be made worse off in terms of well-being and welfare because of this new movement of changing the energy. Uh, to make it more explicit, people should not lose jobs. If they lose jobs, if it, the, the low job loss is inevitable, at least there should be some safety net of how, how to look after them and maybe reintegrate them in any other sector. There are hardly any formalized safety nets that are strictly aimed at protecting workers who may lose jobs because of the transition. But there's another element that comes in from, for, in terms of justness. We don't want it to um, distort the power relationships between the workers and the employers. Sometimes we have seen it that the energy transition is also coming with privatization and the With strict privatisation, and from international experience, the trade unions and the workers tend to lose their voice. We are saying that for it to be just, it should make sure that nobody is made worse off, and their voices and the relationship between the employer and the employee should not also be negatively affected.
4: Making nobody worse off seems a high bar to set, and probably an unrealistic one. In any social change process, there are always winners and losers, Even if, at the macro level, things get better, for some individuals, things will probably get worse. And that's why planning for a transition early seems critical. Here's Mike Levington again. If I have a coherent plan that says over the next 20 years
8: I am going to transition this coal economy to a green economy, OK, and there's going to be opportunities in energy, there's going to be opportunities in water, there's going to be opportunities in agriculture, in service industries to supply it. But then each of those stakeholders have a clear picture of the plan. It then makes the allocation of budgets and, and the, the big impacts you need to make. At the moment, we, we almost try, we want to try and avoid having that long-term view, OK? And, and therefore, policy isn't coordinated. If I'm going to turn Vitbank from a mining industry to a, a green economy industry... What are the skills interventions I need to take in a very unskilled workforce, and how do I one probably initially find uh, absorptive industries, then find reskilling, uh, and make sure that you know TVEC colleges and and other initiatives are in place, and then move on to to education policy that says how do I make sure that the next generation in 20 years time this has the skills. And uh, I would say probably the, the um, agility, I think is maybe the right word, to operate in a fourth industrial revolution space, okay, where we may not even know 90% of the jobs that will be there in 20 years' time. Okay? And, and we don't, unless you have a plan and a vision, you're never going to get very far. You're going to go down too many blind alleys.
4: What's the role of communities in this transition process? Promise Malveni doesn't think they are being listened to.
1: It is hard because the government want us to divert on what we are doing, to do what they want and that will not work for us because we are pushing them to understand what we really feel and what we really look for the future and we are not looking in the same direction with the government Why can the government come with a plan of saying to maybe have people from the operations right now and have people from the communities get training on what is in plan, like maybe when it, uh, the solar system is coming or whatever that is coming, people get ready on whatever that is going to take place in the future. Why can't they start now train people in renewable energy? and in the agricultural system, in whatever that will give more jobs in our communities, not to wait until the day comes.
4: Victor Munich agrees that communities should be central in the planning process for life after coal.
10: It's important to to listen to the voice of the people, what people on the ground want, especially communities who are, are living with coal, close to coal or power stations. But it's also important to to support these discussions and dialogues with you know with knowledge of what is really possible of, of how things can change and and how things can happen that maybe to 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 somebody living in a haze of of coal doesn't actually look possible doesn't look real the debate about a just transition and it's a very really different type of discussion because it's yeah it's got strong utopian elements which I think is a good thing because we, we we need to dream up a future that's very different from from what we have now but being being a utopian discussion we, we, we you know we need to ground that in, in, in understandings of of real economies real alternative options and so on to me this this there's, there's no doubt that that coal is winding down I think it will be in a, in a complicated process so it creates the Opportunity for a new economy, but it also also uh, creates the possibility for a, for a lot of hardship and, and suffering and, and dislocation in the in the current economy. So I think behind the the core question is a very big question about our economic system, about the role of capital, and it requires of us to 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 imagine a completely different society and completely different economic system.
4: The South African story should sound familiar to audiences in other coal producing countries too. Coal mining has brought some benefits to the regional economy, but also some negative impacts for local communities. As South Africa faces up to a future in which global demand for coal will fall, a lot of different stakeholders and interest groups will inevitably need to start grappling with what happens next. Governments, mining companies and the service industries that have grown around mining, labour unions, a new class of entrepreneurs and asset owners, and not least, the wider community, who today may be wondering what they will be left with once mines close. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Attridge. And my deepest gratitude to Victor Munich, Promise Malveni, Anamath Ott, Martin Kagwa, Mike Levington, and the local residents of Umpumalanga for sharing their thoughts on the past, present, and future. Now, as we leave South Africa, I'll give the final word to Mike Levington.
8: How do we transition? We can't do it overnight. you know. How do we do it in a rational and sustainable way? Uh, because, you know, as I say, we, we face some challenges. And then how do we make sure that South Africans get to participate in that. Okay, it just doesn't get taken over by foreign players. You know, and, and that's the, the, we should embrace it. We often get very scared of it and sometimes it might be an Afro-pessimism thing. Uh, I, for one, believe that we have all the skills in this country and of all different hues that can be successful in this space. Um, and Sometimes we just need to have a bit more confidence I think in ourselves.
2: Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show at Radio 3CR. Only here do we have the independence to connect so clearly the shiploads of coal and gas exported from Australia and the deadly heat waves in North America. Thank you to all of those who gave money to our Radiothon appeal. You are encouraging our efforts and thank you so much to you. My name is Vivian Langford,